right. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. And I don't need any of that. So, you know, I picked up my Bible and all the papers fell out. So, but I don't need any of those papers. So, John chapter 5 tonight. But like I prayed, there is a purpose for it being chapter 5. And, and I, you know, I know that I keep reviewing, but I want you to see this flow. I want you to see how when John wrote his gospel, he started with, with chapter 1 to make sure that we know why he wrote the book. And he wrote it so that you and I can know who Jesus is. And again, not like the other Gospels, they say many things of what Jesus did, what he, many things that he said, but John is really making sure that you and I know who he is. That's fundamental. That is fundamental. It's more fundamental that we know who he is, because then as we get to know who he is, we'll listen more to what he says, and we'll follow his commands and be more obedient. So it is fundamental that we know who Jesus is. And then, of course, you know, he started his earthly ministry and, you know, he changed the water to wine and his purpose is to change you and me. And he changes us through the blood. It all comes through the blood. We find that there's many, especially in our area, like Nicodemus, who are very religious. We street, you know, church on every corner. And we have a tendency to think we, we haven't together or we think that, or at least that's what we want everybody to think, that we've got it all together. And we know the, the verses, we can even, we can quote them, we can even, um, oh, we even, we even have what we call church vocabulary. I mean, it's so that we really sound pious and religious. And, and Nicodemus was all of those things. And Jesus was emphatic about making sure that, and he was very direct and, you know, and I was going to ask you the question as we ended the, cha the chapter um, three. When we ended chapter three, I was going to ask you this question. I was, when I, it starts with verse 36, when he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever. Whoever chooses to believe in, in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, not abundant life here or, or our future there. They won't see it. In fact, he says God's wrath remains on him. Now, I was gonna, this is what I was going to ask you. Is that, is that real complicated do you think that that's complicated? When I read, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath will remain on him. Now, is that complicated? No, it is not complicated. That is so easy to understand. The idea is that, like he said in the third chapter, the 16th verse, that he so loved this world that he gave. He did his part that whosoever believes. And then we threw out that word. Now it's your, up to you. I don't push anybody into this. He says, I don't make anybody. Whoever, whoever believes, I'll make it worth their while, though. They'll have eternal life. They won't perish. 
So I think it's not complicated. I think it's right there. And so that's what he's saying to Nicodemus. You must, everyone, I don't care if there is a church on every corner. I don't care how many Bible verses you know. I don't care how much church talk, talk and vocabulary you can fool people with. Unless you've been born again. Unless, and what does that mean, born again? And Nicodemus had that question. Of course he did. What do you mean born again? I can't be born twice. Well, born of water the first time, but born of God's spirit the second time. And where do you receive that spirit? How can you be born of the spirit? When you humble yourself and walk to the cross of Christ and realize that you're a sinner and the Holy Spirit then comes to indwell within you to then cause you to live life abundant with a whole different purpose and worth. I mean, again, that's not complicated, This is the way he set it up so that we could understand. But people want to make it complicated because people don't like to humble themselves and admit that they're sinners. We want to think that we've got it all put together, and we certainly want everybody to think that. And that's why in John 3, when he started his earthly ministry, he went to Nicodemus. He went to people like that because that was going to be a big issue with the Jews because they thought that they were fine. You know, and he had to go to his own people, even like a Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees, the highest of the high when it comes to religious education and that. And he's saying, no, it's everybody straight across the board. No one will enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Again, that's not complicated. He put it in terms that you can't say, well, except for, but, you know. No, he made it very understandable. And then then last week, of course, he took us to the opposite end of the spectrum where you've got this sinful Samaritan woman who is notorious for her past, And we don't really even know. We just know that she was married five times and living with another. We don't know her story as far as why she was married five times. or We we don't understand that. We don't even know her name. And the reason why is because, again, he's in, would you take a look and see her story is your story? Her story is your story because we all, we are all sinners. We all have a past. And her story was just so relevant because, I mean, she knew what rejection was. She knew what it, she, she knew that it would be far easier to just go at 12 o'clock noon instead of going with everybody before because no one liked her. She knew that no one cared for her because of her past and no one wanted to be seen with her and associated with her. But what a beautiful story for Jesus to to purposely land at Jacob's well at 12 noon because he had an appointment with her. He loved her. You talk about taking just as we are. That's what Jesus does. He takes all of us just as we are. And then you watch her him. And this is how he works. He, he kind of gets us into conversation. He kind of starts the conversation and then kind of gets her curious and then looks at her with those unconditional loving eyes that I'm sure that she hasn't seen in years and years. This poor one's probably been used and abused. And for the first time, somebody's looking at her with acceptance. 
And so when Jesus comes right on and says, why don't you get your husband, out comes the confession. And I think this woman, I think she, I think she raised her head for the first time. I think she really did. I think before she, she was looking down so because of her worthlessness. And I think she raised her head for the first time. And where did she head? She headed right to her hometown. And remember the invitation? She said, come, come and see. He told, he told me everything I've ever done. And these people saw a radiance. They saw a countenance change. They saw a behavior change. And because of her testimony, because of her testimony, many came. Many came to know him. And this woman could save. This woman couldn't save the people, but she was responsible to give the invitation and say, look at my story is that he told me everything I've ever done, and he loved me anyway. And then because of that, they wanted to come and meet him. And it said many, because of just one woman's testimony, because she, was, she, was, she believed enough. She was not ashamed enough. She knew her answer was Jesus, and she was proud of that. And she did not put her head down ever again, I don't think. I think the Lord used her in such a great way. So that was last week. So, you, you know, you see someone as religious as Nicodemus, and then you see somebody like a Samaritan woman who feels they're so inadequate, and then everybody in between. But that's who Jesus came for. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned something last week. And I remember, you know, sometimes, you know, we were saying it's so easy, and we're going to see it again tonight. It's so easy to blame someone else. It's so easy to say, well, it's your fault that I'm the way I am. And, and I have to be honest with you. Last week after I mentioned that, I said, you know, that, you know, I, I felt that, you know, I was told I was to blame for, for um you know, some of Jason's problems and that. And, and I went home, and I have to tell you, I, I talked to Jason, and I said, you know, I, I want to bring you back kind of to a rough time. And I said, it's true, right? And I said, you know, you were kind of taught that it was your mom's fault. And, you know, and he said, yeah, I remember. I remember saying that. He said, but then I, and then he wrote this down for me, and I was going to just read it word for word, but basically what he said was, I finally came to the point where I had to stop blaming or realize this is my problem. And I thought, you know, this is exactly what Jesus wants to get us. Last night when he preached his sermon, he ended, he ended um, not just the sermon, but the whole service because he had told a story about this band that when he was in his darkest times, this band, this secular band was, oh, they, they were, oh, he said he went to hear them in concert and he just wept because they were so wonderful. And then he kind of let people, you know, kind of think about that. And then, then after the special music and that, then he came back up to close his service. And he says, and when I hear that band, I usually skip it. I don't even hear it. Because the only time that I really sob is when I go to the cross of Christ. 
And I'm thinking, only God can change a life like that. And that way is what he wants from all of us. Because so often we blame everything and everybody else for who we are. And Jesus is trying, especially in tonight's lesson, he wants all of us to get to the point where we stop blaming and we start accepting ourselves for who we are. And that is a sinner that needs to be saved by grace. And then you are in awe. Then you start realizing that, no, it isn't the place to blame. We're all products of our past and our environment and all that. But Isaiah 43, 18 says, this is what the Lord says. Forget the past. I have begun a new work in you. And what a freeing, what a freedom that is. How freeing that is when you stop blaming everything and everybody and you come to grips with what he's been trying to do with Nicodemus, with the Samaritan woman, and now with this invalid. I just want you to look at me. I want you to see yourself as loved and redeemed and bought back. And all you have to do is believe that and trust that. And it is sweet to trust that and to take him at his word. So now as we move into this chapter 5, sometime later, and we don't know, we don't know how much time later, how much time later, we don't know whether this is like a year later or whatever, but Jesus is well into his earthly ministry. He went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews, and now there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which is which in Aramaic in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. I stopped there and I thought to myself, now why is John so descriptive? Why are these details? Because, you know, he wants us to know it's near Jerusalem. It's near the, the gate, the sheep gate. Um, it is it's surrounded by five covered colonnades. I mean, that's a lot of detail. Why is that so important? And I think this story is so important that he wants you and I to make sure that we know that this was a real place. This isn't uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears and this isn't fantasy land. This is real. This man was real. This was a real place. And he could describe it to a T. In fact, I, I read an article that, that many excavators are digging. And they found in this area, uh, they found five covered colonnades. So, I mean, it is liter literally being discovered. So... This is a real place. This is a real story. Now, at this particular real place, this is what happened there. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, there was one. And why did Jesus pick this one when it sounds like that there was many to pick from? Why was this particular man chosen? Was that very fair? But I think as we see, this is what this lesson, this chapter five, this is what John wants you and I to make sure that we put ourselves in this story. 
I know that we haven't been invalids for 38 years, but we all have something. We all have something that we have a tendency to just want to throw up our hands and give up and throw in the towel, whatever cliche you want to use. And like I prayed, I really believe it. If you wanted to title John 5, his life stinks. And I think every one of us can understand that. And I don't mean to be crude, except that sometimes you just have to be because it is. And so Jesus is saying, okay, um, those are the conditions. And it's not changing. So let's see what's got to happen. So here in this distinct place where all these um, mentally challenged, physically challenged people all gather there, he picked this one. And I dare say it was for a very good reason. When he saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, I had to kind of smile because you think that he didn't know. Of course he knew, but somebody probably came up. He probably pointed to that man and said, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he comes every day. He's been an invalid here for 38 years, you know. So people were probably informing him about different, different you know, situations and so when he saw him lying there and learned about his condition, he looked right at him and asked him a question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Now, on the outward surface, that to me is such a ridiculous question but by this man's answer, I can see exactly why Jesus asked him that. Do you want to be healed? Now, what do you think? See, before I even read verse 7, what do you think when, when if Jesus came up to you and you've been a cripple for 38 years and you have a man coming up to you and said, do you want to be healed? What do you think would be the answer? I mean, a resounding yes. I mean, th to me, there would be no question in my mind what the next word would be. And yet, you read verse 7, and this is why Jesus picked this man, because there's so many of this man around. And we need that same question asked of us. Do you want to be healed? And even though the obvious answer should be yes, it's like when you go to somebody and you say, would you like to know Jesus? Would you like to know the Savior? And, and there's many that say, nah, not yet. No. I mean, don't you just want to shake them sometime? Don't, don't you think that their obvious answer would be Yes. But it's not. And this is such a good question. Do you want to be healed? Look at this man's answer. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 
Did you notice how many I's and E's are in there? And where is he looking? All, all he is doing is looking at the physical conditions. All he can see is that pool, because apparently if someone, if the, if the waters are, are um, kind of rustling, whoever gets into this water first is miraculously cured. I don't understand all that. But instead of looking at the man who says, do you want to get well? And just trust him because there's got to be a reason why he asked that question. Where did he look? All he looked was at himself. What did that sound like to you when you when I read this? I have no one to help me into the pool. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What? I mean, he is so down in the dumps. He is so discouraged. He's so defeated. All the D words of the devil, if you ask me. And he's so fallen into self-pity. I mean, I don't mean to be brutal, but he is a real whiner. I mean, this is when you want to just shake him and say, have you ever heard of the song, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise? Just to know, thus saith the Lord. I mean, you know, I'm saying this, and obviously the song wasn't written then, but it's written for a way we have it. And how often don't we go into our self-pity and we start looking at our own self and we look at, oh, this is hopeless and, you know, I'm just doomed. And instead of looking into the face of the one who nothing is impossible, and even if he doesn't fix it the way you want it fixed, he's got the reason because his will is perfect. And you know that and you trust that. I still go back to that, that what Jesus said to the Samaritan. And I, and I don't know if, I, if I've been haunted by that, but in a sense I have because I can't get it off my mind. When Jesus looked at her and said, if you only knew, if you only knew who it was that was offering this to you, if you only knew. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the key to get to know him. That's what John said I'm, I'm here to do is so that you can know him, that you know who he is because it will affect every other area of your life. And don't you just shudder now to think if Jesus says, if you only knew In other words, if you just knew about me, if you just knew more about me, then you wouldn't be sinking into this situation if you really knew what I promised you. If you really knew what I said, if you really knew who I was, I think, what what am I missing? How much have I missed? Because I've fallen into my own self. Because I didn't want to know him. So, Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, we know that there's other miracles that Jesus does with with a lame man, and there's one in particular, because I think it's just, it's so visual, is that he 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 leaped up. He just jumped up immediately. 
And this, he doesn't, he look at this, he, do, he doesn't just jump up right away, look at Then Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Look what happened first. At once, it didn't say the man got up. It said at once the man was cured. Jesus cured him first. And the way I kind of read this man is that he probably had to bend and flex his legs a little bit and double check. It said he was cured first. He picked up his mat and walked. And the reason why I get that is because of what happens later. So I'm just comparing and we're... I don't see a lot of faith and trust here. In fact, this guy doesn't even know who Jesus is, and he's not even asking. Another thing about this chapter 5, if you want to know, is that yes, life stinks, but another thing is he's saying, if you don't understand or if you don't like it, just come to me. Ask a few questions. What did he love about the Samaritan woman? She had questions. She wanted to know. He doesn't expect any of us to know everything all at once. He knows we're going to have questions because it doesn't make sense. But he wants us to ask. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. And where do we go to find answers? I think I heard you tell me. This book has got everything we need. This is the book we go to if you have questions, and he wants you to have questions, and he wants you to go digging and finding answers. And this man, he got up, he picked up his mat, he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews, now this isn't all Jews, this is predominantly the, the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. How many times have you heard me say, a person who's religious that really doesn't know Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit, they can be as religious as the day is long, but they are critical and crabby. And this, the, these Jewish leaders, this man has not walked for 38 years and what, what's in, why do they, what snit do they have in their bonnet? Don't you think these guys should have said, wow, 38 years of being an invalid, and look at you walk. Who in the world healed you? No, that wasn't it. Their, their question or their statement was, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. See, now watch again this, look. But he replied, the man who made me well is the one that told me to pick up your mat and walk. So what is this guy doing? He's blaming. You can almost hear him say, don't blame me. He's probably scared to death of these guys walking around in all their holy robes. And in all their self-righteousness. And he's just been this poor, helpless invalid for 38 years. And now they confront him and say, you're not supposed to be carrying your mat on the Sabbath. I didn't. 
You blame, you, you talk to him. Well, then they have, okay, we will, but who is he? Who is the fella who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Who is he? See, I didn't like this 13 verse. This man kind of made me a little upset. Because after being an invalid for 38 years, and now all of a sudden you're walking, and you're not asking any questions, you're not trying to find out who he is, the man who was healed had no idea. And it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like he was going to go find out either. Well, yet Jesus slipped away into the crowd. But I think it was a sad, I think Jesus was sad right now. Because this man showed no real interest in him. Now, look, this is so typical of Jesus. Verse 14, later Jesus found him. So if this man wasn't going searching for Jesus and find out who he was, what does Jesus do? He goes after him again. He goes after him again, and this time, though, with a great big warning sign. Because this time, Jesus is saying, now, you know, I healed you physically, but I want you to know that I, I am far more serious with your spiritual health than I am your physical health. Now, you know, you talk about relevant. You think about what we do, what people, what people do to live longer. You think of our medical care and all of the medicine. And have you ever had to pick up a prescription at Meyer? It is a forever line. <laughs> there are so many people doing whatever they can to keep this old body working. All of their emphasis is on, you know, I mean, I got to say it, my mom's 91 years old, and boy, she, she will do anything to hold on to this life. At 91 years old, I mean, the, this is what's been, been just pounded into people. It's all about this life. It's all about this physical body. It's, it's, we got to do whatever it takes to keep this body going. Now, I'm not saying that you don't take care of yourself, but it's just gotten so extreme. And Jesus, in this 14th verse, I think he's saying, it's not that I don't care about your physical body. I prove that I do. And you do have to do the best you can to take care of it. However... If you want to know the truth, I care more about your spiritual health because that's the part of you that's going to live on and on and on. And so he puts this great big warning sign. And I'm telling you, these words, I mean, they're not a lot of words, but again, it's not complicated. He pretty much says to them, because this man was not seeking Jesus out, he wasn't asking questions, I don't think he really could care less, to tell you the truth. But because of Jesus' 
I'm telling you, I mean, he just doesn't give up. He goes after that man again. And then says this, see, you are well again, okay? You're walking. You're, you are well. But then he doesn't say, and when you sin, he looked right at him and said, stop sinning. So obviously, this man is already back to sinning. Now, we don't know what he's doing, but I don't think we have to know what he's doing because what is his greatest sin? What If we aren't looking for Jesus, if we're not seeking him out, if we're not, what's our greatest sin? That. And so what Jesus was basically saying to this man, stop sinning, stop falling into yourself, stop making life be all about you. Our greatest sin is when we are caught up in ourself. The person who never, ever realizes that in and of themselves they're nothing and that they need a Savior and that in and of themselves they're, they're sufficient and it, uh, it's all about this life and to hold on to it and do whatever it takes to live for, for as long as you can. If you've never taken that walk to the cross, if you've never met your Savior, if you've never listened to the Holy Spirit whispering in your ear, because the number one job of the Holy Spirit is to whisper in your ear that you need him, that you need Jesus. And if you say, that's why Jesus calls it the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit is the one and only sin that is unforgivable. Because you're saying no to the one you need the most because you think you're self-sufficient. And according to Jesus, you're sinning. When it's all about you, you are sinning. And he said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In other words, if you don't make a change and it's still, you never question me or you never come to me and want to seek and you you never really want to find, you never knock so the door's never open to you. What does he say is going to happen? If you don't stop sinning, what's, the, what's he talking about? The worst is going to happen to you. What's the worst that can happen to us? Eternal hell. Exactly right. In that one little verse, and there again, I don't think that's complicated. Jesus is working with this one man. He chose this one man on purpose. Man so caught up into himself. Well, that's absolutely a normal human characteristic. So by choosing this man, it was down every one of our human alleys here. We can all get it. And he's saying, okay, I'll do this for you. I will, I will do this to get your attention. Just like with a Samaritan woman. Okay, I'll heal these legs of yours. I'm sure it got that man's attention, right? What a difference between the Samaritan woman and the invalid here. One has questions, the other one could care less. All he cared about was himself. So Jesus went after him again and said, I'm just warning you. 
If you don't step in and be always about me, myself, and I, then I want you to know that there's going to be a greater fall for you. There is going to be something worse than even being an invalid for 38 years. Now look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now, I read that verse, and I thought, oh, you know, I just hope it could have gone one of two ways. It's not like we hear about him going to people and telling his story and being a testimony, like the Samaritan woman. I wish we had more. I wish John told us more. Maybe there is no more to tell. Because maybe, maybe he went back to the Jewish leaders and said it was Jesus because he was tattling. I don't know. We don't know, but see there again, you got one of two things. He could either, when Jesus said that to him, it could have made him mad, ticked him off. When, when he's accused of sinning, when Jesus looks right at him and says, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you, he, got a, he could have got a short fuse and got ticked off and went to the Jewish leaders and said, it's Jesus. So go get him. I know you want him. Or hopefully, hopefully, he went and said, his name is Jesus. I don't know, I'm just, that's what we hope. Because we have, we always have that choice. Because the question is, Jesus is always looking at you and me. Do you want to get well? Do you want, do you want me to save your soul? Do you want your soul well? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, then, this is what I expect. This is what I command of you. This is, it's no longer about you. It's about me. Now, that's true. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Woohoo! But in view of what he's done for you, Romans 12 then says, offer yourself back to him as a living sacrifice. And that's what he expects. The best thing that you and I can do to say thank you is get to know him better, offer ourselves more. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, the Jews persecuted him. That's why I'm pretty sure it was a little farther into his ministry. So, you know, maybe six months to a year, I don't know. But Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Boy, he wasn't a bit afraid to talk to him, was he? I mean, he just looked at him when they, you know, they had this bug in their bonnet about, about him doing that on the Sabbath. And, you know, even though we know that, that God created this earth in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. He rested from creating, which is, which is an example for us. He's saying, you, you guys just can't burn candles at both ends seven days a week. You've got to have one day that you regroup, that you regenerate, that you refocus. Because otherwise, you turn into workaholics, and then it's all about you, and it's all in what you would want, what you can obtain, and then it gets all, you know, priorities get all out of whack, and you need one day 
But when you think about it, he did that for us. Because does God ever stop caring for you and I? I went to Psalm 121, where it says the Lord doesn't slumber or sleep. And it's kind of like what you said, Barb, about Emily. But she says when she, when she was old enough to realize that God never, through her whole life, has God abandoned her. He's always there. He will never leave me or forsake me except on Sunday. No, it doesn't say that. So when, when Jesus said this, when Jesus said this, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. This has nothing to do. We, we believe that because these, these guys, these religious leaders, they took that Sabbath law and they added hundreds of details to it. And it is man's interpretation. I mean, this is gross, I know, but they even limited how many times you could go to the bathroom on the Sabbath. I mean, this is ridiculous. How many of you had grandmas or moms that peeled potatoes on Saturday because they couldn't work on Sunday? I know. You know, and there's something very sweet to that. But a lot of these man-made laws were added and just put more pressure on the people. But Jesus is saying, I don't really care what day it is. If somebody needs help, if somebody's soul needs to be revived, if somebody needs, I'm there. He never stops his work. So now Jesus is going to try. Now, I, don't, I have a red-letter edition, and I'm not saying that red-letter edition because we know that Jesus' words are in red-letter edition if you happen to have one of those Bibles. That doesn't mean that the black letters are any less important because every word is true. I want to make that clear right off the bat. But there's something about a red-letter edition is that then you see that Jesus has just about had it with this picky, uni stuff. And from verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter, there is not one black letter. There's not one interruption. He doesn't allow for anybody to say anything else. So to me, in fact, I, I, when I was studying it, I found that they called this a discourse. And then I had to look up what discourse meant, and that's kind of like a sermon. He decided that, okay, you're going to hear it. Now, I noticed that, Ma that Matthew has one chapter toward the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry where there was one chapter just given to the seven warnings, the seven woes to the Pharisees. John doesn't have that chapter. I would almost dare say this is pretty close. This is close where he is saying, I don't want any interruptions. I am going to make sure you know this. And then what you do with it is up to you. Because he is really strong. He starts the 19th verse. I tell you the truth. 
And I hope you're catching on to this, that when you see Jesus say, I tell you the truth, he is not just saying, uh, and this isn't a lie, when he says, I tell you the truth, that is, you better be listening. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. To me, you have to have an understanding of the Trinity to really understand this verse because the Godhead was divided into three persons, each one having their specific jobs that pertain to our salvation. The Father who came up with the idea, who's the Father who loves unconditionally, who... who, then said to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, would you go out, I'm the father, you go be the son of man, you leave your, and I, I, I'm just going to read this because it's so important that you hear this. And in Philippians 2, because I just don't want you to think that Jesus is just because he's the son that is secondary or that he's employer-employee kind of thing. Jesus was willing to take this position. He's equal Godhead, but he was, he, he was willing to take this position of a human being so that blood could be shed. So in Philippians 2, Paul writes this about Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God, equality with God, he is God, something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, But then I'll have you know, this second person of the Trinity, this equal Godhead, went back to his position and was exalted and put into a place, the highest place, and given the name that every man, every person will bow down to and every tongue will confess to. I just had to read that to you because when you read this sermon, Jesus is pretty much saying to these religious leaders, let me just tell you who I am. And I don't want you to second guess for one minute. I was willing to do this. And because I was willing to become a human being, I do nothing without asking my father Because in this human state, I want someone to be able to listen to. I want someone to give me instructions. Do you think as our mentor, that is prime? This should be something that you and I should sit up and take notice with. Because as we are in this human condition, we should say the same words Jesus does. I tell you the truth. I can do nothing by myself. I can only do what the Father tells me to do. That is, I think this is such an example 
that Jesus being in human form knows he has to listen to the Father. And he's saying to you and I, you can't do it by yourself. Through the power of the Spirit, you listen to the Godhead. They will show you what to do. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Well, that hasn't changed. The Father loves you. He loves me. What's the first thing you and I, what's the first song we learn in Sunday school? You better believe it's Jesus loves me because it's the foundational, it's the foundational message. He did it all, not because we were worthy, not because we were worth it. He did it because he loved us and he loves us. So this relationship between the father and son, he's saying to these Jewish leaders, don't kid yourself. And then he says, yes, and to your amazement. He's going to go on and say, yeah, and to your, this is going to amaze you even more, he says. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. In other words, you have seen nothing yet. You just watch. For just as the father raises the dead and gives, gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In other words, what the father does, I can do. And then verse 22, in my version, the first word is, and moreover. And I think that, that means... Oh, and just add to it. And oh, by the way, I want you to know this. He said, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now remember who he's talking to, these Jewish leaders. Oh, it's all about God. It's all about, they think they know everything. And he's saying, guess what? I am. I am. He's talking deity here. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I Tell you the truth, a time is coming and now and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about himself and who are the dead? Every one of us. Every one of us without a Savior. So he says, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those, again, whoever, those who hear, those who hear and listen, they'll live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him, Jesus is saying, the Father has given him, Jesus, the authority to judge because he is the son of man. Jesus is the perfect judge. And why? Because he's going to judge justly. And why? 
because he's the son of man, because he understands everything we've been through because he's been through it. No one can ever look at this judge and say, well, you know, but you didn't, you know, you're God, and so you wouldn't know what it was like, and that's why, and Jesus is going to come back and say, oh, no, no, you have that all wrong. I lived for 33 years in a human body, and I went through everything that you did. And so I am going to be able to judge perfectly. And then he, he goes on, again, no red, no, no black letters. He's on a roll. In these, from 19 to 27, he basically said, um, don't kid yourself. I am God. And then in verse 28, he says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all... I hope now as you read this every day, these little words come out of you, these words that are all inclusive. He said, don't be amazed for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, and I don't want you to misunderstand that those who have done just good works. What is the best good that we could ever do? Come to know Jesus as our Savior. That's right. That is how we are made good. That's how we are made righteous, only through the blood of Christ. So those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, I don't know if you read that too fast, but, you know, that just made me go to Revelation. <laughs> because... Until time is no more, we are on a, such a timetable. And he pretty much said right then and there that all are going to rise. I, went, I first went back to, for, or went forward to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the apostle Paul said, the dead in Christ, the dead in Christ, here's the timetable, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then if there's anybody here, it says, and you who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And Paul said, I'm telling you this to encourage you, that if you're a believer, you have nothing to be concerned about. We might not understand how it's all going to transpire, whether the word rapture is in there, whether you just believe. I mean, they, you know, this has nothing to do with it. The timetable is the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we're going to be able to have that time together with him. And then if you go to Revelation, you find that that those who are, that have been those who, who have been in Christ, they've risen first, will be a part of the thousand-year reign. But then, according to the timetable of the revelation, see, those who haven't believed, they're still in their grace. According to Revelation 20, after the thousand-year reign, it's called the Great White Throne. And at the great white throne, it said, then the unbeliever, the unbeliever will be raised. And that is not a fun chapter to read when you start reading that because the, the unbeliever will then be raised 
to be? Why are they raised? Why are the why are the the unbeliever? Why are they raised? They have to be raised so that they could be sent to hell. Oh, that is a that's a tough chapter to read, but this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get them to see. I want you to realize this is serious. That's why he says, don't be amazed by this. A time is coming when all who hear are in their grace and hear his voice. It doesn't say it's all going to be at one time. Those who are believers, they're going to be, they're going to be raised first. And then we'll be a part of, of, of his second coming, of the thousand-year reign, and all that good stuff. We're going to be watching. We're going to be able to watch him on the white horse, and he's going to slay the nations who don't believe. Oh, I wouldn't miss that for the world. But all the unbelievers—they're staying dead. They're not going to be a part of that at all. But mark my words, mark Jesus' words. The unbeliever will be raised. Now, do you understand all this? Do I understand all this? No, no, I don't. But when I read Jesus' sermon here, his discourse, you know what that makes me do? I want to go, I want to go searching more. I got questions, Lord Jesus. I want to know. I want, I want to find some answers. A lot of people just poo-poo and say, well, we don't know. There's a lot more in there that we're just not digging and finding out. I've studied Revelation 22 times, and every time I study it, it becomes more exciting by the day. Do I understand it all? No. Do I understand the part about me? I sure do. And I can't wait. And I think this is the purpose. He's saying, he's trying to, whether he's using a scare tactic, I don't know. He's trying to say, I don't want you amazed by this. Like Paul said, um, I want you encouraged by this. I want you to get your life together now while you got time because then it's going to be too late. So he's saying, um, I, I don't be amazed by this. I'm leveling with you. He said, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but to him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. I mean, that's true. I mean, you toot your own horn, you know. But he's saying, let me tell you, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. He's saying, no, John the Baptist couldn't save you. But he sure did his job. He sure did what I asked him to do, and that was prepare the way. So when everybody was starting to follow Jesus and him, John the Baptist smiled and said, I did my job right. This is the way it was supposed to be. John was a lamp. I love the way John the Apostle writes this. John was a lamp. John the Baptist was a lamp. He wasn't the light. But he was, he was the lamp that held the light, that shone the light. 
And I'm thinking, isn't that a beautiful picture? We are his lamp. If we have the light of Jesus in us, we're the lamp, and we should be showing the light. We're not the light. We're the lamp of the light. And just like John, John was a lamp that burned and gave light. And you chose for a time to enjoy this light. There was a time you were believing him. So now he used John the Baptist. So first of all, in this sermon, in this discourse, he lays it out saying, believe me, the Father and I are one. Don't kid yourself. He's even given me the authority to judge. And then he says, and I want you to know whether this is a scare tactic or not. I tell you the truth, this is going to happen. Graves are going to open. Everyone who is dead in a grave is going to rise. So he tried that tactic. Then he used John the Baptist. And you believed him? Now, I have testimony weightier than John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Oh, verse 37. The Father's already confirmed this. When did he do that? Do you remember? When did the Father confirm his son and his job at his baptism? You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. And why is that? Because you didn't want to. That is so serious. It's like Jesus is showing himself in his words so clearly. And there's so many things that are so black and white and not complicated. But I'm saying to you, if you don't want to hear it, you won't. If you really want to, if you really don't want to be healed, and you just soon have the excuses. Because another thing about this chapter is, guess what? With Jesus, there's no more excuses. And I think there's a lot of people that just soon, um, they'd rather wallow in their self-pity than to be changed by Jesus because then you don't have excuses. Some people, like a lot, I know that there's a lot of Bible studies and some people say, well, Linda, why don't, why don't you have people talk? Because there are a lot of people, you know, they've got a lot of trouble and they want to talk. I'm telling you, it's not that I don't want to hear your story, but so often we get talking about ourselves all the time. And, Whoop, time's up. You know what? I know we all have a story. We all have a sad story right now. We all have a suffering. But I'm telling you, instead of spending all of our time talking about our sad story, I just as soon find the solution for every one of us. I just soon go into God's word and hear what he's got because I believe every word is true and it's all that I need. He's got the solution for us. And let's spend our time hearing and studying and asking questions about the one who is our solution for every one of our somethings. If you don't want to hear it, you won't. But look at he says, then nor does his word dwell in you. Remember who he's talking to here the religious leaders. 
nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You, dil you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Now you know as much as I love Bible study, as much you know how much I love this book. But this book can't save you. It can only lead you to the one who can. That's why it's so important. Because it, is, because it is the one source that will lead you to the one who can save you. But he's trying to say to these, to these leaders, he's saying, you take so much pride in how much scripture you diligently study. Well, guess what? Until you know the one who wrote the book, until you get to know the one who it's all about, the only one that could save your lost soul, You diligently, diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You can read this all day long, but until you come to Jesus, because every, every, every piece of scripture leads you to Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about leading you to Jesus. The whole, the Gospels are about Jesus. Paul leads you to Jesus. Peter leads you to Jesus. John in the Revelation leads you to Jesus. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I do not accept praise from men. You think, well, hey, you mean all this singing we did? But you got to read more. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I don't accept praise from you because it is so phony baloney. I can see whether your hands are in the air and you're just, everybody else is looking at you and, and they, they think, oh, wow, look at them. Ah, I see right through that, he says. I know you, and I don't take that praise. Oh, I'll take the praise if, because I know you, and I know your heart, and you love me, and you are so grateful for me. But he's just, again, he's reminding those religious leaders, I see right through phony. You don't have the love of God in your heart. He can see that. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. I'll tell you, there's so many false Christs that come after Jesus. Um, there's a false prophet that's going to come. There's someone called the Antichrist. And, and you know what? They're all going to be suckers to them. And he's already warning them. And yet, I, I'm the real, and you won't believe me. But anybody who comes, you know, with a new fad or charming or, oh, you believe them. When was the last time you really picked up and got to know me? It's so easy to fall into the, the, even the spiritual fads. Oh, he's coming down again, I repeat. No dark letters in this. 
How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the the praise that comes from the only God? Oh, you just want the praise of men. Remember what Jesus said to them, they better enjoy it now because they're not going to get any later. All those who have their eggs all in one basket here and it's all about now, well, they better enjoy it. That's what he's basically saying. It's all about you. It's all about pride. It's all about everybody recognizing who you are. I just soon have the praise. I just love that verse where Jesus says that if you know me, I will bring you before my Father. Oh, isn't that going to be something? I can almost hear when Jesus says, come here, I want you, Father, I want you to meet. I want you, I want you to meet Dee Dee. I want you to meet Jill, Jan. I want you to meet them, Judy. I want you to meet them. They loved you. They had a hard life. You, you gave them a lot. But they stood. They stood for you. They trusted you. It was sweet to trust in you and to, to take you at your word and rest upon your promise. Oh, I think that's, this is so good. But do not think I will excuse you before the Father. Yeah, because you know what he's going to say to some? I'm not going to introduce you to my father because I don't even know you. He says, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. Now, before this chapter ends, he's going to try. He's going to try one more. And this is a biggie. By the mere mention of the name Moses, that would have perked up those Jewish leaders' ears. Stand them right on end. Because Moses was their guy. And what he tried to say to them, you know what? Your man, Moses, he's the one that's going to accuse you. And you think, how can Moses be the judge? Jesus is the judge. No, Jesus is going to remind them that even Moses and I, I, I went and discovered, I went and found out, Moses, he didn't use the name Jesus, but he talked about, he talked about Jesus in, in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I have the exact the verses down. So what he's trying to do in this last part of his discourse, the last part of his sermon, he's trying to throw it out and say, I'm not going to accuse you because when you, when you see Moses, you're going to say, oh, I should have listened. That's what he meant. And I didn't really even ask enough questions. I didn't really want to know. I thought I knew everything. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And that's how John ends this fifth chapter with a question. And I think that's on purpose. I think he is just in this chapter, he's saying, this is reality. It is not complicated. Without any black letters, Jesus is definitely speaking his piece. He used, I'm equal. I'm equal Godhead. The graves are going to open. 
John the Baptist. He used scriptures, and he used Moses. You can never say that, that Jesus didn't try with these religious leaders. He used every tool that he had. And you, you would think, like the invalid, do you really want to be healed by the one who can heal you? You should be running so fast, you can't get there quick enough. You, shouldn't be sh you should be shouting yes louder than any other yes you've ever said. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth. May we take heed, may we listen, may we want to be real. Father, you, you said it all through your son. And we know the equal Godhead has got a purpose. And we are grateful for every person in that Godhead. So Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we can't do it without you. We can't be saved without you. We can't live this life without you. Like Jesus said of his father, I can do nothing without him. I can do nothing without him. And we pray this all in our Savior's name who makes life so worth living. Amen.